0: Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1103 of This Week in Amateur Radio. Now in our 21st year of service to the amateur radio community worldwide, we are This Week in Amateur Radio, North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service of the air. Welcome to our World Amateur Radio Day 2020 edition of This Week in Amateur Radio. Here are the stories for release around the earth as we come to air with edition number 1,103 of This Week in Amateur Radio. The ARRL says that a remotely administered amateur exam system is showing promise. Riley Hollingsworth, K4ZDH, has rolled out the new volunteer monitor program. We will tell you all about it. Amateurs in Alabama respond to several reported tornadoes. It looks like the new solar cycle, number 25, actually began last December, 2019. Both the ARRL and AMSAT seek relatively minor changes in the FCC's proposed new Orbital Debris Mitigation Proposal. The amateur radio on the International Space Station program is taking a new approach to school contacts during the current planetary lockdown. The League announces new benefits for members, and we'll tell you all about them. The FCC plans to take action on the future of the 6 GHz band and if you have children, you might interest them in story time from the space station. We will have all the details coming up in this week's report. These headline stories will come to you in a moment along with this week's special features. We'll visit with Bruce Page, KK5DO, and get an update from AMSAT on what's new with all of those amateur satellites in orbit. Our technology reporter, Leo Laporte, W6TWT, We'll answer the question, how reliable are modern solid-state drives? And we'll explain how to back up Windows 10 natively. Australia's own Otto Benshoff, VK6FLAB, asks, When was the last time you played? Our own amateur radio historian, Bill Continelli, W2XOI returns, with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives. This week, Bill looks at the history of the Technician Class License. Our tower climbing and antenna master talks about pre-climbing safety procedures, including lockout tagout. That's with Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. And that's all straight ahead, as North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine and bulletin service, This Week in Amateur Radio, takes to the air right now. Reporting from our new special lockdown headquarters here in Albany, New York, I'm George, W2XBS, trying not
1: to go stir-crazy in this little room. And reporting from our News Bureau in Rochester, New York, I'm Dave Wilson, W-A-2-H-O-Y. And
2: reporting from our HEPA-filtered, soundproof, gloved, and mask cleaned Destine Outpost in the Catskill Mountains, I'm Don Hulick, K-2-A-T-J.
3: And from Quarantine Studio One in our Central Florida News Bureau, which is really not a bad place to be, I'm Fred, November Fox, 2 Fox.
4: And reporting from our news bureau in Fayetteville, Arkansas, where old man Winter seems to be having trouble finding the old exit door, I'm Will Rogers, K5WLR.
1: 30 minutes of solid amateur radio news begins now. Welcome to our newscast, leading off this week's news. Facing a growing demand for amateur radio exam sessions in a time of social distancing and stay-at-home orders, sponsors of some volunteer examiner teams have risen to the challenge and are developing systems to remotely proctor test sessions. Many of our VEs and VE teams have been working on remotely proctored exam session ideas, employing both video and in-person components, following social distancing protocols, ARRL Volunteer Examiner Coordinator Manager Maria Soma, AB1FM, said, We have been receiving interesting and innovative suggestions, and we appreciate the dedication and ingenuity our examiners have shown. The Spaulding County Amateur Radio Club in Georgia is among those that have come up with plans to remotely administer amateur exams while complying with ARRL VEC testing standards during the stay-home mandates and social distancing guidelines. Current systems leverage Zoom video teleconferencing technology, the fill and sign feature of Adobe PDFs, reliable email, appropriate computer equipment and internet connection, and no volunteer examiners present at individual remote test sites. The Georgia Club collaborated and shared ideas with the Emergency Amateur Radio Club in Hawaii, which has successfully conducted sessions since 2011 with its own remote testing system, initially with paper exams with a proctor on-site, and now with fillable PDFs with no on-site proctor. The Georgia Club obtained ARRL-VEC approval to administer video-supervised exams. The club's David Robinson, K4WVZ, said the first exam session took place this week, with another set for next week and many more in the pipeline going forward. We have started with testing just one candidate at a time, but are planning to ramp up to multiple candidates probably two or three simultaneously, Robinson told the ARRL. Before we do that, we want a few more single sessions under our belt and a few more video VEs trained. It also gives us an opportunity to garner lessons learned from each test session and upgrade our procedures accordingly. Robinson said this week's session went exceedingly well and the candidate passed the test. The club's procedures entail a pre-exam video interview with candidates to ensure they understand all the requirements and procedures. This also allows us to test the candidate's ability to work with the video and computer technology before the actual exam, Robinson explained. Training sessions were conducted for VEs to make sure they understood their role and how to use the technology. Following the exam, the VEs score the test and sign off on the paperwork with the VE team leader submitting the application online and by mail, per ARRL VEC instructions. Application and successful exam are first accepted and then submitted to the FCC for processing. Meanwhile, New England Amateur Radio NE1AR An affiliate of New England SciTech has taken it one step further, Soma said. It got the approval of ARRLVEC to begin trials of what it describes as completely online testing with strict rules and protocols for maintaining the integrity of the testing environment. NE1AR is limiting candidates to one exam per candidate. Due to the current candidate backlog, and the difficulty of administering exams online candidates must agree to a list of protocols which include no visitors or pets in the exam room and a cell phone camera scan of the entire room and exam area to show that there are no materials or people in the room that could aid in taking the exam if the ve team suspects the possibility of cheating the exam may be terminated, and the candidate barred from future online exam sessions. We began a series of trials on April 1st under ARRL VEC review and have now been asked to help train more VE teams on the process, NE1AR President Bob Finney, K5-TEC, told the ARRL. We have now tested 12 applicants and are still working on streamlining the process. We are working with the software developer of the exam delivery system to help them adapt the system for video supervised testing. At present, Finney said, only one person at a time can be tested. Another time-related issue is how long it takes a candidate to go through the NE1AR security protocol. Sometimes, the setup and follow-up for an exam take far longer than the exam itself in order that we provide complete integrity of the exam session, he said. With pressure continuing to build to provide testing compatible with stay-home guidelines, ARRL VEC Manager Maria Soma, AB1FM, has asked the amateur radio community to be patient. Please remember that with the introduction of significant new processes such as these, that there should be proof of concept, establishment of protocols and procedures, and beta testing before expanding to a larger audience, she said this week. Selma said video supervised exam sessions require a different skill set than in-person exam administration, and not all teams will be equipped to deliver video exams right away. ARRL is pleased to be one of the leaders in providing an opportunity although limited initially, for video supervised exams in this time of social distancing and isolation required by the current health situation, Soma said.
5: You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
4: After kicking off on January 1st, the new Volunteer Monitor program has ramped up to operational status. For more details, we go to Steve Ford, WB8IMY, reporting from ARRL Headquarters in Newington. A soft rollout of the program began on February
6: 1st, designed to familiarize Volunteer Monitors with the issues on the bands and to put into practice what to report and what to ignore based on their training. The Volunteer Monitors not only will be looking for operational discrepancies, but also for examples of good operating. The Volunteer Monitor Program has, at least for the moment, put Riley Hollingsworth, K4ZDH, back in the center of amateur radio enforcement as the Volunteer Monitor Coordinator. Hollingsworth reported that during March... The 165 active volunteer monitors logged more than 2,300 hours of monitoring on HF and nearly 2,000 hours on VHF and UHF. According to Hollingsworth, one case is being prepared for FCC referral already, and it involves long-standing interference to a repeater in the Philadelphia area by someone using an unauthorized call sign. Hollingsworth said he also worked with net control operators of nets on 40 and 75
4: meters that had been suffering serious interference. Riley Hollingsworth, K4ZDH, was brought aboard to get the program up and running, and ARRL will eventually take over the volunteer monitor coordinator function. Hollingsworth is using a system called VMtrack developed by a volunteer monitor, to measure the work of the VMs and determine instances that qualify for good operator or discrepancy notices, referral to the FCC, or follow-up with FCC requests to the volunteer monitor program. I am extremely pleased with the number of hours devoted to monitoring this early in the program, Hollingsworth said. No stone is being left unturned. Two VMs constantly monitor FT8 watering holes and have developed programs that alert them if a licensee is operating outside of privileges accorded to that license class or if a license has expired. That has occurred in half a dozen cases so far, he said. We have 30 open cases, five of which are good operator cases, Hollingsworth said. Regarding open cases relating to rule violations, none have yet had to be referred to the FCC. He said he's experimented with letters, telephone calls, or emails to the subjects of discrepancy reports where they could be identified. While he's still waiting for replies to his written correspondence, he has received responses to his calls and emails, and the violations have either stopped or were explained. They were violations such as expired licenses, technicians operating on general frequencies, unauthorized use of a call sign, and deliberate interference, he said. It is becoming apparent that if informal contact can be made by the volunteer monitor coordinator with a known offender, the problem can sometimes be stopped, Hollingsworth said. If this continues to work, it will minimize FCC referral and make those we do refer more worthy of FCC resources and more severe action. We do not want to call upon the FCC unless absolutely necessary, But when we do, the subjects should understand that FCC action will be expedited. I think our own enforcement outreach may resolve all but our very worst cases. At the present time, we have only one in which we do not have a suspicion as to who is causing the problem. In Alabama
2: this week, residents in lockdown were also dealing with severe weather. Alabama amateur radio operators were deployed Easter Sunday afternoon and evening in advance of severe weather outbreaks to assist the National Weather Service and individual county offices of the Alabama Emergency Management Agency. At one point, there were at least seven tornadoes that had been confirmed across north and central Alabama, though that number could rise. One particularly hard-hit area was Walker County, just northwest of Birmingham, Local hams there passed sky traffic on the WB4ACN Aries repeater regarding at least two separate tornadoes that struck, one with speeds between 86 and 110 miles an hour, and another with speeds between 111 and 135. Station K4NWS in the Weather Service's Birmingham office received ham reports of winds downing trees around the county. Further north in Huntsville, ham staffed WX4HUN at the Weather Service's Huntsville office and received traffic from hams at the North Alabama and Southern Middle Tennessee Skywarn Net. That net was made up of seven linked repeaters covering a 14 county area. As of midweek, only three tornadoes had been confirmed, plus widespread wind damage reports. This weather isn't anything unusual for these areas. April is peak month of the spring severe weather season across all of Alabama. The hams are always prepared to step up and assist.
3: Contester, DXer, and solar watcher Frank Donovan, W3LPL, said, Some of us have noticed a slight uptick in the solar activity since Christmas Eve when two solar cycle 25 spots AR-2753 and AR-2754 appeared. Only one of the five subsequent sunspots, AR-2757, has been from cycle 24. All the sunspots over the past 12 months have been relatively weak, and have very little effect on propagation. Donovan notes that the start of cycle 25 will not officially be declared until later this year. It's highly likely that it started on December 24, 2019. The next important event to look for is a strong cycle 25 sunspot, hopefully this year he added. Donovan referenced articles from the IOP Science, Sci-Fi Wire, and What's Up With That websites.
1: On April 8th, ARRL Washington Council Dave Sedal, K3ZJ, and AMSAT North America Executive Vice President Paul Stetzer, N8HM, discussed with senior FCC International Bureau staff by telephone the FCC's draft report and order on mitigation of orbital debris in I-B docket number 18-313. The amateur representatives told the FCC staff The two aspects of the draft regulations are of particular concern and would seriously hinder amateur radio's future operations in space if adopted as proposed without the relatively minor changes that we propose. First, both the ARRL and AMSAT requested a revision to proposed language that otherwise would allow only private individual licensees to indemnify the U.S. for the operation of amateur space satellites. ARRL and AMSAT requested the satellite owners be added to that provision. The amateur representatives, noting that amateur radio licensees may only be individuals under the amateur rules, stated that in no other service would an individual be required to personally make a similar indemnification and that it would be difficult to impossible to find an individual amateur radio licensee willing to bear that risk. Second, ARRL and AMSAT asked the FCC to delay by three years the proposed effective date of April 23, 2022, for a rule that would require satellite operators to certify that space stations be designed with the maneuvering capabilities sufficient to perform collision avoidance for spacecraft designed to operate above 400 kilometers in altitude. Citing the long lead times to design and construct amateur satellites, ARRL and AMSAT suggested that a more reasonable date would be April 23, 2025, and noted that, based on recent past years, only an estimated three to five amateur satellites likely would be launched during that extra period. We do not disagree with the purpose of this requirement, they told the FCC staff, but the proposed effective date is unreasonable in the case of amateur radio satellites. The new effective date would allow for amateur spacecraft designers to adapt to this new requirement, they said. Citing the value of amateur satellites to the development of the commercial small satellite industry and student participation in such projects, ARRL and AMSAT said a strong and robust amateur satellite service will help inspire future developments in satellite technology. The requested changes to the draft R&O would help ensure that amateur radio continues to have a future in space and contribute to the public interest on an educational, non-pecuniary basis. The FCC is expected to consider the R&O at its April 23rd open meeting.
7: You're listening to America's premier amateur radio news magazine
8: of the air. This week in amateur radio.
5: ARRL
4: members will now receive digital access to four ARRL magazines, beginning with their latest issues. Here with the details is ARRL Publications Manager Steve Ford, WB8IMY. As a new
6: free benefit, ARRL members will soon receive digital access to two more magazines, beginning with their May-June issues. Joining QST and on-the-air magazines on a digital platform will be the bi-monthly editions of QEX and NCJ, the National Contest Journal. QEX includes articles, columns, and other features ranging from construction projects to more advanced technical information. NCJ targets radio amateurs who are active in radio sport. All four magazines are easily accessed through any web browser at www.arrl.org forward slash ARRL Magazines. The free ARRL Magazines app is available for
4: iOS and Android in the Apple App Store and Google Play. Feedback from ARRL members and our readership surveys has shown that our magazines are one of the most valued member benefits, said ARRL Publications Manager Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Our investment in digital access provides another channel through which we can deliver content to our members across the expanse of interests and activities in amateur radio. All members can enjoy specialized content and a high-quality reading experience, whether at their desk or on the go. Offering the suite of digital magazines is an opportunity for us to give members more of what they want while adding value to ARRL membership. ARRL's digital magazine editions provide replicas of the printed editions with added functionality, allowing users to fully search issues, enlarge pages, share articles, and more. The free ARRL Magazine's app also supports downloading complete issues onto your mobile device or tablet for offline reading. Members who have elected to receive a printed QST or on-the-air as part of their membership benefits will continue to have this service. Members may not substitute a print subscription of QEX or NCJ as their delivered magazine member benefit. Print subscriptions of QEX and NCJ will continue to be available at additional cost for those who want to receive them. If you're already an ARRL member and previously created an ARRL.org website account, your username and password will provide you access to the digital editions, whether online or in the app. Members who have not previously registered will need to create a new account. If you've forgotten your password, visit www.arrl.org forward slash forgot hyphen password or email circulation at arrl.org for assistance. Previous and prospective members can join ARRL and take advantage of this and other membership benefits. The SSB edition of
2: the AWRL Rookie Roundup returns on Sunday, April 19th at 1800 UTC and continues through 2359 UTC. For the purposes of this operating event, a rookie is any radio amateur licensed within the current calendar year or in the previous two calendar years. You can be a rookie if you haven't made any contacts on the contest mode SSB, CW, or RTTY before the Rookie Roundup Contest. The goal of the Rookie Roundup is to encourage recently licensed amateurs in North America, including territories and possessions, to operate on the HF bands and experience competitive amateur radio operating. Experienced operators are encouraged to participate and help out new operators. In the past, this assistance has come on the air and in person. This year, however, ARRL is strongly discouraging the in-person component of the event to comply with social distancing guidelines. A non-rookie can help mentor a rookie by a phone, Skype, or desktop sharing software, such as TeamViewer or NoMachine, however. Opportunities abound for newer hams to participate. Single operator participants are more than welcome to join in the fun, either as rookies if they qualify, or as non-rookie veteran operators making contacts with the rookies. Team entries may be submitted containing up to five different single operator entries. Team registration is available via the Rookie Roundup webpage and will close 15 minutes before the event begins. Rookies can work anyone in the contest while non-rookies are only allowed to work rookies. New operators will benefit from working veteran operators and could be their first HF contact. Non-rookies are encouraged to participate and report their contact totals using the online score reporting form on the Rookie Roundup webpage. All score summaries, no logs are required or accepted, and they must be submitted within 72 hours at the end of the event. For complete rules, visit the Rookie Roundup webpage.
3: The Federal Communications Commission is expected to act this month on changes that would open new frequencies on the 6 gigahertz band for use by Wi-Fi devices. Companies such as Apple, Facebook, and Google have eyed the opportunities on this part of the spectrum as a way to ensure faster internet connections. The commissioners are scheduled to meet next on April 23rd and a recent report in Bloomberg News said, said the 6 GHz vote is on the agency's agenda. One of the major opponents of opening up the ban is the utility sector. Utilities have said network reliability could suffer if Wi-Fi networks are given access to 6 GHz because they will cause interference. FCC Commissioner Ajit Pai proposed the change last year saying that increased access to the radio spectrum would be an asset for future 5G development.
1: The recently released TQSL version 2.5.2 application for uploading logs to Logbook of the World tightens requirements for data consistency with the goal of improving the integrity of the LOTW database. Starting with TQSL version 2.5.2, discrepancies in submitted logs now are flagged especially when it comes to the amateur data interchange format files frequently uploaded to LOTW. This has prompted questions and concerns, however, when the system fails to accept a user's uploaded contact or log. ADIF exists precisely to help ensure the accuracy of data interchange among amateur radio applications, different logging programs, for example, TQSL uses ADIF file data for cross-checks that help to keep inaccurate or incomplete information from contaminating the LOTW database, and that's where some user issues have arisen. For example, the operator field, which should be a call sign, sometimes shows up as a name. Occasionally, operators have reversed their ITU and CQ zones. Another issue is the my state field, which should show a U.S. Postal Service two-letter state abbreviation. Anything else is a problem. The value of the checks added to TQSL is that it lets operators know when the data they're handling in their computer-based logs is correct, said TQSL developer Rick Murphy, K1MU. Just as most hams would not knowingly send out a QSL card with the wrong details, it's important to make sure that when a ham submits a log to LOTW that the content of that log accurately captures the details. It also prevents operators from uploading logs that contain incorrect information. Some help is on the way. Murphy soon will release TQSL version 2.5.3, which, among other things, skips over the operator field check. We have found that some of the checking performed for TQSL 2.5.2 was incomplete in some cases, for example, allowing incorrect zone information to pass, and overly strict in other cases, for example, the station owner tag, Murphy said. We've taken feedback from users and made great strides in improving the way logs are checked to ensure that checking is more complete while not raising false alarms. The problem is not always with the user. The initial implementation of cross-checks in TQSL 2.5.2 revealed that not all logging applications conform to the ADIF standard, which is maintained and voted on by the 22-member ADIF group, which includes ARRL. TQSL 2.5.2 has offered support for operations from several locations, as well as the ability to detect uploads that contain incorrect location data, and the field used for checking location has been in the ADIF standard since 2004. Some commenters have suggested that AWRL has not defined the ADIF fields appropriately but this represents a misunderstanding of how the ADIF standard is developed and maintained. Logging applications are obliged to follow the standard if they generate files that claim to be ADIF compatible. Operators have a right to insist that the logging applications they use conform to the standards agreed upon by the ADIF collective said Greg Whidden, K0GW, the chair of the ARRL-LOTW committee. Those who find that their logger is out of conformance should demand an update, or, if the logger is unsupported, or the developer is unwilling to update, should investigate switching to an application that is a cooperative member of the universe of amateur radio logging applications.
0: We pause for stations along the network to identify. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, your amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air, available as a podcast on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartMedia, and Spotify.
7: It's time for Ask the Tech Guy a question all about how long SSDs last. Next. And now with the latest technology news and commentary from Petaluma, California. This Week in Amateur Radio is proud to present Leo Laporte. Let's talk tech, you and me. We're having a fun time. This is like a little user group here. I bought a new iMac. With an internal SSD solid state drive. How long, under normal use, I'm not a power user, should it last? I've heard SSDs cells start to fail after a while. So, this is a common misconception about SSDs that they're somehow not going to last as long. And in fact, they wouldn't, except for some very sophisticated circuitry in the controller of the solid state drive. This circuitry does something called wear leveling. See, the problem is that the memory cells on any solid state memory, NAND memory, will wear out after many, many uses. You can write to them only so many times, and then they'll just stop taking data. To prevent this from happening on an SSD, the controller software the firmware uses something called wear leveling to even out the wear across all the cells there are many cells billions of cells on a modern ssd so by wear leveling they can make sure no one cell gets written to too many times and my experience with ssds has been they are just as reliable in fact probably more reliable than any spinning drive there are no moving parts after all and uh, they don't get as hot Uh, There's no actuator arm. There's no spinning disk. So it kind of makes sense. A solid-state drive should last a good long time. So early fears that SSDs would be fragile have really proven unfounded. Our friend Alan Malventano, who was a PCPC perspective, now works at Intel, was my SSD guru from the very earliest days of solid-state drives. And he agrees SSDs are very, very reliable these days. We did have a friend uh, who, in the earliest days of SSDs, tried using an SSD as his swap disk for Windows, burned it out very quickly. But again, this was in the early days, pre-wear leveling. Tony did say he'd found a program that uh, for his Mac called Drive DX, which would give him information about how his drive had Fared in its overall health rating and would even give a time left indicator on the drive. I had to give him the bad news that this is a program like many, and I downloaded it and bought it. It's $20. It's a good thing to have, but it's using something called SMART. And SMART technology is unfortunately not as smart as it sounds. S M A R T, which uh, stands for. Self monitoring analysis and reporting technology. It was created, I think, with the best of intentions for hard disk drives, spinning drives, but the manufacturers really decided not to give it all the power it might have because they didn't want pop ups showing up saying your drive is about to die. And that was what Smart was supposed to do. So Smart is somewhat limited in its capability of diagnosing drive failure. Still, this uh, Drive DX is actually pretty cool. It shows you all sorts of information about your drive and gives it an overall grade for lifetime left and health rating. Uh, In fact, Tony's drive said he had one issue, a failing indicator pre-fail on lifespan. Don't know what that means. And Drive DX said your lifetime is good, 100%. So I wouldn't worry about it. SSDs last as long, if not longer, than spinning drives. These days, they're so reliable, and they're so much faster than spinning drives that I think you're going to be better off putting an SSD in wherever you can. The only negative on solid-state drives is the price. They're slightly more expensive per gigabyte, gigabyte than spinning drives, but that price is dropping dramatically. For myself, whenever I buy a new computer, I put a solid-state drive in. I don't use spinning drives anymore. Uh, except maybe in my network-attached storage device, and that's only because I want a huge amount of capacity for as little price as possible. So SSDs, safe, reliable, they're going to last a long time. Buy them, use them, you're going to be happy. Uh, Let's see, what else can we talk about? Backing up Windows 10 automatically. Well, there are lots of ways to do this. Backup is, of course, really important. If you don't make a copy of your most vital documents, You'll lose them. You almost guaranteed you'll lose them. Now, I'm going to say before we tell you how to do it, what you should back up. In general, you don't need to back up Windows. You don't need to back up your apps. Anything that you can download or reinstall yourself, don't bother backing it up. There's already a copy somewhere else out there. You want to back up the stuff only you have. Pictures of your babies or of your wedding, uh, documents, emails, things like um, financial records. You know, the most important stuff you have is stuff you created and you have the only copy of. That's the stuff you need to back up. And of course, I always refer to my friend Peter Krogh. He's a great photographer, wrote the Digital Asset Management book. Photographers are absolutely crazy about backup. And he's the guy who coined the term three, two, one backup. Three copies of everything. If you delete the original... Then you only have two copies. So you want to have three copies of everything, two different f- forms of backup. So you're not relying on any kind of media or, or software. And finally, one of those backups should be in the cloud. I'll talk about all three of these things in just a second. Microsoft builds in a couple of backup solutions into Windows 10. One of them is the strangely named file history file. File history is believe it or not a backup solution. This is Microsoft's own support article. You go, you click the Start menu, go to Settings, Update and Security, and you'll see in there there is a backup entry, uh, and then click that and add a drive. You can choose an external drive. Microsoft points out you could also use a network location for your backups. Having an external drive always connected to your computer, you can use file history to automatically backup files and it does this with versioning so it will keep as many versions of the file as you have your room on your hard drive you might want to check the settings and make sure that you don't uh, just keep backing up till your hard drive is full you might want to say only keep 10 copies or only keep copies for 6 months there are a variety of choices uh, there but this is very handy for keeping not only a copy of your documents but as you change a document let's say you've changed your will keeping all the copies for a period of time that have been made. So that's called file history and that's why the name kind of makes sense. It doesn't mention backup but that's what it is. It's backing up your files and keeping a history of them. I think that's a good solution and it does have an automatic feature to it. But there's an even more automatic way to do this and that's with Microsoft's old school, they call it Legacy Backup. You'll find it in the System and Security Control panel under Backup and Restore Windows 7. Don't be put off by the name Windows 7. This is still working on Windows 10. It's just their old school uh, way to do it. So let me show you some of the screenshots here of what it looks like because you shouldn't be scared away from it. So backup and restore under Windows 7 allows you to do it automatically to an external drive either on a schedule or when the drive is connected. You might want to schedule it say every day to do an incremental backup, that is, backup the things that are changed. This is probably the backup most people are familiar with and used to, and it's a perfectly fine system. You can use it uh, reliably, and like file history, it's free, and it comes with Windows 10. Notice on the page there's an additional entry, create a system image. Let me talk a little bit about what images are. Uh, we used to call them ghosts from the program Norton Ghost. That was a really old program. For taking everything on a hard drive and bundling it into a single file, kind of like a freeze-dried version of the drive, a moment in time. Those are really handy for any time that you want to get a system back up and running quickly. For instance, you buy a new hard drive. You can take an image file and blast it onto the new hard drive. It'll be identical to the old drive you made the image from. So it's very useful for that. I almost always make images when I'm first installing Windows. I'll do two images. First, I'll install Windows, get it running on a machine, just plain vanilla Windows. I'll make an image file then. And you can make the image to an external drive, to a thumb drive. You can even put it on a CD or a DVD if you want. It's nice to have those lying around because that means you don't have to go through the Windows install process on that machine ever again. You just blast the image back, gets it right back to the brand new, fresh install of Windows. I usually make a second image after I install all the apps I know I'm going to want, get everything configured like the Wi-Fi, all the passwords, get my LastPass going, all of that. And then I'll make a second image. And that image is usually the one I'll use, which gets me back to that point in time when i had a fresh system properly configured and running the problem with image backups is they don't record anything after you make that image they're a point in time and if you change one file then that change is not saved the image backup you know brings you back to that point in time sometimes people use images they restore and then they're disappointed they've lost so much it's because you weren't backing it up so images is imaging backup You can do it with the System 7, Windows 7 Legacy Backup. It's a great thing to do, but don't think of it as your whole backup strategy. You still want to use file history or the Windows 7 Legacy Backup to back up changed files. They call that incremental backup, backing up all the files that have changed since your last image. There are lots of other third-party tools as well. Those are the two that come with Windows. They're free. The one thing I'm not crazy about, and a lot of backup programs do this, they make a blob. You, you can inspect what's in the blob and so forth, but there's no way to see if that file is intact and is, is properly backed up. You can't just open it. You, you know, it's sitting there in that blob. So I always like to do backups that make an exact directory of the file structure so I can go and look and see that all the files are there and even spot check them by opening them up. That's just a personal preference. Lots of people have used Windows backup uh, since the Windows 7 days and are perfectly happy with it. If you want to look at other offerings, there are excellent free and paid offerings from EaseUS. That's at EaseUS.com. They have Data Recovery Backup. They have a partition manager. They also have an imaging program. Acronis is very well known for its imaging program, True Image, but they also have other backup software. You can use True Image 2020 to both backup and create disk images. There's also a company called Macrium, M-A-C-R-I-U-M, and their Macrium Reflect has a free edition you can use to to do backups. So all of those uh, are perfectly good. You Take your pick. Honestly, the ones that come with Windows are generally what I use. But remember, it isn't enough to make a local backup of your most important stuff. You want to make sure, as I mentioned, that you make an off-site copy. So you might go to a company like iDrive. Uh, there are many ways to do this to up to the cloud. Another solution, and this is the one I use, just so you know, it's a little bit more expensive, but it's a lot more flexible. I use a network attached storage or NAS device. I use one from Synology. I have that NAS in a closet at home, and I can put software on all of our systems, our phones everything we have to automatically back up periodically to that drive in the closet over the network. That means I always have all the data on that drive in the closet. Synology NAS's come with software. They actually, you can use iDrive or other software to back up to the cloud so you can have that NAS backed up. If you don't want to spend the money on a subscription to a cloud service, you can even get a second NAS, it's probably more expensive, and keep a, the identical NAS at work and have those two synchronized. That's actually what I do. I have a Synology NAS here one at home, and they keep in sync. So I have a copy off-site, a copy at home, and those are always available to me. There's lots of ways, in other words, uh, to do this. A NAS is more expensive, but also much more flexible, and you control the backup. No one else has an access to it. Anyway, I'm glad you were here, and I'm here, and I'll be here next week, and I hope you'll come by and bring your friends, too, as we talk high-tech. Leo Laporte, the
9: tech guy. Are you ready for another trip into amateur radio history? I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY, and I'll be back in a moment with another edition of the Ancient Amateur Archives, here on This Week in Amateur Radio.
5: You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
9: Welcome to the Ancient Amateur Archives. I'm Bill Continelli, W2XOY. The technician license is, by far, the most popular class of license now held in the amateur community. So many new hams started at the technician level to the extent that the novice license was eliminated as unnecessary. The amateur community accepts the technician as an acceptable mainstream license, either as a stepping stone to a higher-class license or as an end in itself. But it wasn't always like this. For the first 25 years of the technician-class license existence, it was an official outcast, set apart by the FCC as separate and distinct from the other amateur classes. Why were technicians considered second class? To answer this question, we must go back to 1951. On July 1, 1951, the FCC replaced the Class A, B, and C licenses with the Advanced, General, and Conditional classes and created three new licenses, the Extra, Technician, and Novice. The FCC was specific about the purpose of the Technician class license as shown in the following quote, This class was established expressly for serious-minded experimenters who need spectrum space in which to air test their equipment. It was not established as a communication service and should not be regarded as a stepping stone between the novice and the general operator classes. The technician class of amateur license has as its purpose the provision for the serious minded amateur experimenters to explore the higher frequencies and otherwise contribute to the art. Thus, the technician was an experimenter, not a communicator. For this reason, the FCC initially allowed technicians privileges only on frequencies above 220 megacycles. The FCC did not intend for the technician to engage in casual conversations on the air. Other than allowing the technician to simultaneously hold a novice license, which at that time was valid for only one year and non-renewable, it was expected that the technician operator would stick to experimentation not communication. Although many of the early technicians were indeed pure experimenters, many others obtained the license as a means to communicate without having to pass the 13 words per minute code test. These technician communicators became restless with the limited frequencies available above 220 megacycles, and they wanted access to the more mainstream VHF bands at six and two meters. They were joined by a small number of technician experimenters who also wished access to 50 and 144 megacycles for the purpose of studying sporadic e-skip, building equipment for these bands, or even using their license for radio control. Thus, in early 1955, a proposal was submitted to the FCC to allow technicians access to 6 and 2 meters. Knowing that the FCC regarded the license as an experimental one, these proposals avoided mentioning communication rather phrases such as greater experimentation were used the awrl supported technician access to 6 but not 2 meters in announcing their decision the awrl stated that 6 meters was far less occupied than 2 meters and could use the influx of technicians to study the band and thus contribute to the greater understanding of the unique characteristics of 50 megacycles the awrl went on to say that permitting technicians on 2 meters would appear to make the technician license too attractive. Many amateurs also wrote the FCC on this. Some said the technician should have the full access to all frequencies above 50 megacycles, while others opposed the move, citing the FCC's original intent for this license and expressing fears that by allowing technicians to use 6 and 2 meters, they would become mere communicators. On April 12, 1955, the FCC amended Part 12, not part 97, of the rules and regulations to give the technician class operator six, but not two meters. The fears of those opposed to technician communicators were amplified in 1958 when, at the peak of the sunspot cycle, thousands of technicians used F-layer skip on 50 megacycles to work vast amounts of DX, with some earning the All States Award. Nevertheless, Allowing technicians on 6 meters had a beneficial effect. It helped populate a band that was underutilized, and it allowed a greater study of E and F layer skip. For this reason, early in 1959, another proposal was submitted to the FCC to allow technicians full access to the 144 megacycle band. This time, the ARRL agreed. They stated that things had changed since 1955, and technicians on two meters would benefit not only the advancement of the radio art, but would also allow all classes of amateur licenses to share at least one voice band in common, as novices had access to the 145 through 147 megacycle segment of two meters. Despite the ARRL's support of technicians on two meters, there was opposition. Again, the argument as to the purpose of the license was brought up, Many amateurs wrote to the FCC, stating that a technician was an experimenter, not a communicator, and that the license should not be used for routine exchange of communications. One ham complained that technicians were rag-chewing and not experimenting. A few amateurs not only wanted technicians kept off of 144 megacycles, but asked the FCC to incorporate their statement as to the purpose of the license into Part 12, presumably so that technicians caught communicating, rather than experimenting, could be fined or have their licenses suspended. Others, including the AWRL, did bring in valid experimental reasons to allow technicians on two meters. Once again, the FCC compromised. They restated their official position that a technician was an experimenter, not a communicator. However, they acknowledged that VHF studies could be made on two meters, and that it was beneficial to have one common meeting ground for all classes of license. Thus, on August 21, 1959, Part 12 was amended to allow technicians access to the 145 through 147 megacycle segment of two meters, the same subband that the novices had. And so, technicians entered the 1960s as a distinctly second-class license. They were not eligible for racy station authorizations. They could not hold many AWRL appointments. And, despite the AWRL support of full technician access to all frequencies above 50 megacycles, the FCC's official position had not changed. Although no technician was actually ever fined or suffered a license suspension for the crime of communicating, many hams felt that technicians were merely glorified CB'ers who are violating the spirit, if not the letter of the law. In our next installment, we will see how a new, short-lived VHF magazine and an official change in the ARRL's viewpoint helped to bring about a gradual acceptance of technicians as real amateurs. I hope to see you then. Your time is up. Go in peace. But return again for our next installment of the Ancient Amateur Archive.
5: You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
6: I'm Steve Ford, WB8IMY, and this is the propagation forecast for Friday, June 17th. It looks like we have a very quiet sun in the forecast for the next several days. Not only are there no sunspots, there are no holes in the sun's corona and that means no streams of particles and no geomagnetic storms. Despite the fact that we're well into spring with the usual higher levels of atmospheric noise, these quiet solar conditions are still good news for hunting DX on 160 and 80 meters. And speaking of springtime, the 6-meter sporadic E season appears to be off to an early start. There are reports of frequent band openings with folks working throughout the country on FT8, SSB, and even CW. If you have 6-meter capability, it's time to keep an ear to your radio. And now, with this week's satellite update, here's Bruce Page, KK5DO.
10: COVID-19 has changed a lot of things in the country. ARIS is working to change the way they are doing contacts with the astronauts and students. The astronauts are in a really good position right now. I do not think anyone can sneeze and infect them. However, school gatherings are no more. ARIS leadership is working with physician that is on the team to follow the ever-changing events that COVID-19 has created. ARIS has two primary initiatives underway. One is to develop a virtual school contact to link each student in their home through its telebridge stations. The other is to plan SSTV picture downlink sessions during which pictures from the ISS can be received by all in their homes. Thanks to Frank, KA3HDO, Eris International Chair, and the AMSAT News Service for this update. This is Bruce Page, KK5DO. Foundations of Amateur Radio.
11: The other day, it occurred to me that my call sign had been away from HF for months probably longer. I didn't really want to think about how long it had been. I moved QDH over two years ago, and ever since I've been working on a new antenna setup. You know the kind, you shouldn't rush this. Anyway, having just had a camp out with some friends for a portable contest where I gleefully had fun with the station call sign, I thought it was time to actually do what I keep advocating to anyone who stands still long enough to get on air and make some noise. So, I did. You know that feeling when the longer you wait the harder it gets and the more you put it off? That had invaded my thinking and my avoidance. The typical excuses of not enough space, too much noise, no antenna, radio not ready, too hard, all fought their way into prominence. I'd had enough. So, on Saturday, I collected all the bits that make up my portable station. It had clearly been a while since I had used it, since I couldn't for the life of me remember where the head of my Yesu FT-857D was. That was until I remembered that it had previously been installed in my car. So, that's precisely where I found it. The tiny jumper cable between the head and the body was located in my headset bag, where I'd stashed it after forgetting it for a contest one year. The microphone was where I'd stored it in the car. The battery was easier, since I'd used that the weekend before. Pulled out a table, a chair, and set about putting my station together right there in the driveway. I'd been meaning to test an antenna that, to all intents and purposes, was doomed to fail. A long wire on the ground. I didn't have an unun or a ballon, but I did have my trusty antenna coupler, so I used that. One end of the antenna, twelve and a half metres going one way, the other half going at a right angle. That pretty much solved that. Then for the final touch, I turned the radio on. All worked and I set about figuring out what I could hear. Across all the NCDXF beacons and bands, I could hear the local beacon about 30 kilometres away. I have mentioned the NCDXF before, but in short, the Northern California DX Foundation has since 1979 coordinated the installation and maintenance of a collection of transmitters that 24 hours a day, every three minutes, transmits on a staggered schedule across five different bands. It's called the International Beacon Project. For funding, the NCDXF relies on donations from people like you and in Western Australia the WA Repeater Group maintain the beacon Victor Kilo 6 Romeo Bravo Papa. Each transmission consists of a call sign, a beep at 100 watts, a beep at 10 watts, 1 watt and 100 milliwatts. You can hear the beacons on 20 metres, 17 metres, 15 metres, 12 metres and 10 metres. Their purpose is to determine what propagation is like across the world, on each of the bands, in pretty much real time. It was the impetus for me to start learning Morse code. In case you're wondering, no. I know, I'm still at it. On my wire on the ground antenna, the local beacon on the 10 metre band was by far the strongest. I also had a listen on 80 metres and 40 metres and even found two stations in deep discussion about something or other. Didn't manage to catch their call signs, but good readability, not so much in the way of signal strength. I called up a friend on 900 MHz. In case you're sceptical, yes, I hold a licence for that. So do you. It's cunningly encapsulated in a sophisticated portable battery-powered multifunctional gadget made of electronics and glass. He was in the middle of repairing some damage sustained to his G5RV Junior antenna during our latest adventures. Hi, Glynn and afterwards we had a go to see if we could in fact hear each other. I was using 5 watts, he something like 70 watts. Neither of us could hear the other, even though we're a similar distance from each other as the beacon. Not yet sure if it was his radio acting up, or mine for that matter. I then started down the digital modes path, installed a PSK31 decoder, and set about programming my radio for the traditional PSK31 frequencies. Didn't hear anything, didn't decode anything, but had a ball nonetheless. You might think to yourself right about now what the point of all this was if I didn't make any contacts. The answer is simple. I got outside, in the sun, soaked up some vitamin D, and played radio, just like the weekend was intended for. My next adventures are likely going to involve the same antenna and a vertical for transmit to see how that goes. You don't need an excuse to get out and play, and when you do, you might not make any contacts, but that's not really the point of playing, is it? I'm Ono, Victor, Kilo 6, Foxtrot, Lima, Alpha Bravo.
3: Astronaut Chris Cassidy, KF5KDR, and two Russian cosmonauts arrived on April 9th as the Expedition 63 crew on the International Space Station, temporarily restoring the orbiting laboratory's population to six people. Soya spacecraft transported Cassidy Anatoly Natoly and Ivan Wagner on a four-orbit, six-hour flight after launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan. The Expedition 63 crew will live aboard the station for a bit longer than six months with Cassidy as commander. The Expedition 62 crew of Jessica Meir, Drew Morgan, KI-5AAA, and Oleg Strypochka, RAD0LDJ will head back to Earth on April
7: 17th. You're listening to This Week in Amateur Radio on
8: Finer Repeater Systems Nationwide. The Australian
2: Maritime College has been asked to review proposed changes in radio call sign structure that would enable any amateur in Australia to be allocated any available three-letter suffix, regardless of license class. The proposal is a result of a survey by the Wireless Institute of Australia with the Maritime College, which manages call sign issuance, reviewing it on behalf of the national regulator, the ACMA. Around 60% of survey respondents expressed a preference for removing the relationship between suffixes and licensed class. If enacted, the change would mean that hams upgrading their class could still retain their original call sign. This proposal is the latest review of call sign procedures and follows a March announcement that hams moving from one state in Australia to another need no longer apply for new call signs to reflect their new QTH. The ACMA and the AMC are also reviewing an application from the Radio Amateur Society of Australia to permit hams to use the prefix A-X during the period of lockdown resulting from the current pandemic. This mirrors a recent announcement in New Zealand that hams there may use the Z-M prefix instead of the standard Z-L. Meanwhile, with the hope of making the foundation license even more acceptable and attractive to newcomers, The Wireless Institute of Australia recently completed a poll of holders of the VK call sign, asking about changes that could be made to that syllabus. The poll contained recommendations from WIA's syllabus review panel, which was formed last year. All Australian amateurs were asked to weigh in on such changes as the introduction of new knowledge elements to the test, which the review team opposed, and whether exams should utilize predefined Australian standard schematic symbols in cases where the ESO IEC standard symbols were not available. The review panel also told poll takers that it recommended that change. The WIA panel also recommended that amateur radio be redefined as a service instead of a hobby. The WIA poll was conducted in response to an inquiry from the Australian Communications and Media Authority, which created an amateur radio syllabus review panel last year. The results of this survey will be
4: forwarded to the Australian Communications and Media Authority. The inaugural camp for radio amateurs in the Americas, aged 15 through 25, has been put off until next year. It was set to take place June 21st through the 26th at the National Voice of America Museum of Broadcasting in West Chester Township in North Cincinnati, Ohio. It has been rescheduled for July 2021. Campers accepted to the 2020 camp will have the first chance to register for the next year's camp. The daily schedule and plan for the 2020 camp will be the same for the 2021 camp, as much as possible. The committee found that July was a more accessible date for the widest range of campers to attend. The committee is also looking at ideas for a shortened, virtual camp this summer, so that campers can participate in limited activities from home. The camp was meant to focus on building peer and mentor relationships and taking amateur radio to the next level. While many sponsors and donors have already expressed support for holding over funds received for 2020 to use in 2021, refunds of donations made to the camp are being offered. Groups or individuals wishing to receive a refund should contact Director Neil Rapp, WB9VPG. Less than $350 of the money spent thus far went to items that may not be usable in 2021, Rapp said. More information about YOTA in the Americas can be found at Youth on the Air and on YOTA Region 2 on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube.
3: Hams in New York State. Hams there are giving the world's biggest amateur radio thank you to you, to the men and women on the front lines. The Great South Bay Amateur Radio Club in Lindenhurst, New York, is coordinating the activation of a special event station, K2H, that's H for Heroes, starting May 1st and running through May 31st. This is a statewide activation with hams in every county throughout the state operating in the spirit of gratitude for the police, firefighters, medical professionals and food service workers, the people who keep things moving while the world itself seems to have stopped. If you're in New York State and wish to join them, please email the organizers at k2hheroes at gmail.com for details. That's k2h followed by the word heroes at gmail.com. If you're hearing this report anywhere in the world, be listening for K2H on all bands and in all modes. Downloadable certificates will be available.
1: The annual ham radio show in Friedrichshafen, Germany has decided to cancel its 2020 show due to the virus pandemic. According to the announcement, ham radio acted in accordance with an April 15th decision by federal and state authorities that no major events are to take place until August 31st. Ham radio 2020 was set for June 26th through the 28th. The event is Europe's major ham radio show attracting some 15,000 visitors from around the world each summer, including a contingent from ARRL. This year's show would have been the 45th edition of Ham Radio. Our members, domestic and foreign guests, and we ourselves, have been hit hard by this decision, which now became necessary to make on short notice, said Deutsche Amateur Radio Club president Christian Entsfelder, DL3MBG. Until we get together again in Friedrichshafen, we as amateur radio operators are looking forward to keeping in contact with one another using amateur radio. On the Ham Radio website, exhibitors, including Deutscher Amateur Radio Club, will offer a virtual show.
0: And now, with his segment on tower climbing and antenna
8: safety, here is Arizona's own Greg Stoddard, KF9MP. When climbing on a commercial tower, we need to be aware of RF safety laws. Exposure has been the subject of debate lately, especially since the guidelines have been introduced into the amateur's vocabulary. There are certain requirements you need to be aware of. Some are required by law, and some are not. This all depends on the tower and how it is loaded with commercial services. For those of you who are not aware of the federally mandated safety guidelines, there is a general set of rules about working safely with sources of energy. Lockout tagout is a phrase which refers to the use of safety devices to help prevent accidental injury to workers servicing equipment. On towers, lockout tagout can include seals on breaker switches, inline coax switches, or other similar devices. I'm not going to refer to any specifics but to good personal safety guidelines. If you are working on a shorter tower with perhaps a few paging systems, you need to consider exposure to RF as well as the risk of injury from contact with active antennas. When you are working on or near an antenna or its feed line, you must ensure that it is difficult or impossible for someone to turn on the transmitter while you are on the tower. If you are at 250 feet and your partner is on the ground, Another person working in the transmitter shack could easily turn on the transmitter that is attached to your body. It is your responsibility to unplug the transmitter's power cord or remove the fuses, mark or lock the breaker so anyone else not involved in your work cannot accidentally turn on the injury-causing transmitter. Before you start working, make sure everyone in the area is aware of what should or should not be turned on and install some sort of locking device. A cable tie is suitable as a lockout in many circumstances. I sometimes put cable ties through the holes in the prongs of a 115-volt plug to prevent it from being plugged in while I'm on the tower. If I'm working on a hard-wired system, I may remove the coax and cable tie it to something inside the cabinet along with something like my car keys to prevent me from forgetting to reconnect the coax as well as preventing it from getting turned on and cooking my fingers off. When working on a crowded tower, you may have to arrange to climb at pre-scheduled off-air times to minimize exposure to powerful RF fields. I will not climb near an active broadcast antenna and prefer to climb near active paging system antennas during off-peak times. This is another reason why I prefer to climb at night. The essence of lockout-tagout is to ensure that the system you are working on is at or very close to a zero potential energy state. Equally important is that the energy supply to the device is locked in a zero energy state by any reasonable means, which would prevent a casual user from activating the device while you are working on it. Some simple methods of locking out a transmitter would include shutting off a breaker and locking it in the off position, removing fuses and locking the fuse box shut, switching off a breaker and using a hardware store breaker lock and tag to mark it out of service. For the home-based amateur, shutting off the power to the radios connected to the tower is a good beginning. Unplugging power cords or unhooking coax wires is another. Here's another good reason to have a ground crew. They can also become involved in lockout-tagout. Just remember to lower each device to a zero energy state before starting the climb. Sometimes this is not possible, but always plan for the safest climb. After doing it several times, it'll become second nature to you. There's a lot more on lockout-tagout than I have time to cover here, so if you're climbing for a living, be sure to review your employer's safety and exposure guidelines. Another place to look for information is the OSHA webpage, or your state's electrical safety codes. Remember, you cannot tell if an antenna is transmitting just by looking at it. Direct contact with a transmitting antenna can leave you with an instantaneous and very painful burn. Getting a second degree burn on the palm of your hand at 150 feet on a tower would ruin anyone's day. Also keep in mind that just because a transmitter is unplugged, it may still offer a small voltage difference between the tower and that antenna. It is impossible to attain the exact same ground potential between all the systems on a tower. So the risk of a shock while climbing will always be present. Just be careful when you touch antennas on towers. Remember, tower work at any height can easily become deadly. Clear, sober minds must be in charge. Money spent on books, videos, and climbing gear is well worth the investment. This is Greg Stoddard, KF9MP, reporting for This Week in Amateur Radio.
5: You're listening to North America's premier amateur radio and technology news magazine of the air. We are This Week in Amateur Radio, distributed worldwide at TWIAR.net.
4: The D4 VHF station on Cape Verde Islands off the coast of Africa finally managed to work as far west as Puerto Rico on Saturday, the 11th of April, when a successful FTA contact on 432 MHz was completed with WP3DN. The transatlantic distance was almost 4,370 kilometers, which is about 500 kilometers further than the first contact to Guadeloupe on 432 MHz a few days earlier. To put the distance into context, 4,370 kilometers is the same as say St. John's, Newfoundland, to Frankfurt in Germany. It now looks as if the exceptional opening on the VHF and UHF bands across the Atlantic may be coming to a close after having been open for the best part of a week. Meanwhile, the claimed transatlantic record on 2 meters has been extended to nearly 4760 kilometers or 2951 miles. The incredible tropo conditions between Cape Verde Islands and the Caribbean continues to amaze with transatlantic contacts on 144 MHz and 432 MHz being made. John Desmond EA7GL said in a blog post The April 8th FT-8 contact was between D-4VHF in the Cape Verde Islands and PJ-2BR on Curaçao. The distance covered was some 300 kilometers greater than the previous transatlantic record set last summer by D-41CV and NP-4BM. The new 2-meter transatlantic record distance is about 10 kilometers short of the IARU Region 1 tropospheric propagation record on that band, Desmond said. The youthful team Exuberance has announced it's
2: postponing its planned CQWPXCW contest, operations from K3LR, until May 2021. Team Exuberance will compete in the Multi-2 category. While this decision was not taken lightly, it was clearly the appropriate action in light of the virus pandemic, team member Bryant Rascal, KG5HVO, said in an announcement. Thank you to all individuals and clubs who financially contributed to our fundraising effort, he said. Those seeking to have their 2020 contributions refunded should mail him or Marty Sullaway, n one c All funds retained will go towards Team Exuberance's next operation,
4: Rascal said. In a message to Amateur Radio on the International Space Station team members, sponsors, and educational institutions, ARIS International President Frank Bauer, KA3HDO, outlined how ARIS is transforming its activities as a result of the current virus pandemic. Our primary objective in these challenging times is to protect all students, faculty, astronauts, and our volunteer team in all we do, Bauer said, noting the international scope of ARIS, and the space station. Each one of us around the globe is dealing with the current situation in one way or another. Each area of the globe is unique in the virus spread, as well as in the government policy to protect their people. And the situation in each location is changing every day. ARIS has postponed school and group contacts in Georgia, Tennessee, and California, as well as in South Africa and Romania. At least one school or group contact in the UK has been canceled altogether. ARIS needs to be prepared for a longer-term effect, months, Bauer said. As a result, we have instituted an immediate response effort, followed by a more strategic, longer-term initiative to protect all. ARIS leadership, working with a physician on the leadership team, is carefully reviewing all of our procedures in light of the evolving recommendations. We will continue to monitor the local and global situations and will modify our local and global planning as these situations change. Bauer said that over the short term, ARIS mentors will work with each school or organization in the ham radio contact queue to determine the way forward. He said ARIS would rely on local government policies for guidance in deciding whether to cancel or postpone a contact or to modify the contact schedule. But in each case, we are encouraging all to put health and safety first. And each contact decision is being carefully scrutinized by the senior ARIS international leadership team, he said. Bauer said that several initiatives are in the works over the longer term to transform how we interact with students and host educational institutions by engaging with students and educational institutions virtually. One possibility, he said, is ARIS virtual school contacts, employing ARIS-Telebridge ground stations around the world to link individual students at home with audio and streaming video. Typically, Telebridge stations serve as ground stations for ARIS contacts with schools not in the footprint of an ISS orbital pass. ARIS plans to transition into this model in the next couple of weeks, Bowers said. ARIS also is planning several slow-scan television sessions, during which images from the ISS would be transmitted to at-home students. These can be received directly if a student has a radio or indirectly if a student connects to a remote station via Internet or goes to the ARIS SSTV gallery, where all downloaded images can be posted and reviewed, Bauer explained. Bauer characterized the ARIS long-term approach as a huge pivot for the organization, but said ARIS considers it a great strategic move going forward. It should be noted that one reason we were allowed to set up ARIS on ISS was to help astronauts improve their psychological well-being by allowing them to freely talk to students, friends, and ham radio operators on the ground, he said. We are now at a juncture to help do the same for students. In other words, providing a psychological well-being STEM motivation to students faculty, and the local community through Eris-on-orbit
1: connections that are virus-free. And finally this week, a collaborative educational program known as Storytime from Space has a lot of youngsters feeling over the moon, quite literally, because it lets kids watch videos of astronauts reading the children's books while on the International Space Station. Now hams are also over the moon about it too, The latest book to be added to the list of stories available in the video reading sessions is a book by Emily Calandrelli, KD8PKR. Emily is the author of Ada Lace, Take Me to Your Leader, the story of a YL and the many QSOs she has on a radio she'd repaired. Astronaut Anne McLean reads the book in three video segments. There's an extra treat thrown in for good measure in the second segment, Kids get a tour of the radio station used for contacts using amateur radio from the ISS. The final segment includes a video of astronaut Sunita Williams, KD5, PLB, who also talks about the ARIS program. To get a good read on this latest story from space, visit Storytime from Space. That's storytimefromspace, one word, dot This
4: Week in Amateur Radio is heard on nets and repeaters all across North America and around the world on great repeater systems like the KD5-DMT 145.290 and 443.025 MHz repeater system in Centerton and Garfield, Arkansas, owned and operated by the Benton County Radio Operators Club, serving Northwest Arkansas, Southwest Missouri, and Northeast Oklahoma.
7: This Week in Amateur Radio is produced by Community Video Associates, Incorporated. Now, for the
8: staff of This Week in Amateur Radio, this is Jeff Rahner, WB2AEQ, saying 73 until next week. This Week in Amateur Radio is copyright Community Video Associates, Incorporated. All rights reserved.